Thanks for choosing this podcast from the United Fellowship Baptist Church of Toledo. And this is the conclusion of the Button Series. Where's the button? Where's the button? Nothing new under the sun. So what we're seeing today, even though it may seem odd, 
There is nothing new under the sun. It is not new. All these crazy things have happened before, even in this combination. You might even think, oh, no, this is new because certain things have never happened before at the same time. That isn't even true. It's all happened before. Uh, there have been world pandemics before uh, with losses of life. I don't know how they compare, but tons of losses of life. And there have been de depressions and recessions and e economic struggles. Uh, and there have been persecutions, much greater persecutions against the church than right now exist, although there are some pretty strong ones going on. But there have been much greater persecutions against the church than we have seen in our lifetime. So all of this is not new. It is a continuation of his great story. And so we'll look to him today as he leads and guides us. I'll remind you a couple of things. If you look in your bulletin, they're there, but I'm just going to make a couple quick announcements. If you have never registered for Bless Every Home, it is an opportunity to pray for your neighbors by name and by address. We encourage you to do that. Our goal then is to, once we have populated our lights on the map and we know who we are, you can actually invite others, others in your neighborhood, others in your family, and so on, to become lights for our church to pray for their neighbors. So that's kind of phase two, and we'll try to kind of sort of expand our list a little bit and have more folks praying. The more folks you got praying, the more God moves, and that's just the basic truth. And so we, the goal is to pray for your neighbors. If you have signed up for that, whether it be once a week or X times a week, whatever, I would encourage you that every time you see that email pop up to try to do that. Um, it really does take such a little bit of time that when you see it, you can go, boom, there it is. Pray those five names and that short verse. And if the Lord lays anything else on your heart, and then click done, and you mark down that. And then also, you know, let that encourage you to take the opportunity to share love with them, to talk to them about Jesus, and to mark down if they say if they're professing as a Christian. Which is a, that's what's further in those boxes there. Just praying for them is good. The other things are good uh, in a godly kingdom advance type way. And so I encourage you to do that. And if you have not filled out your questionnaire, please do so and get that in. Um, we are going to be using them in this month's team leader meeting to plan uh, activities of love. And so, you know, you want to be loved. You want activities directed in your direction. You'd like to maybe have that surprise come up that someone is showing you an, act, act, an activity of love toward you, whatever, if I can say that. Um, so I encourage you to do that. And then also realize you have that opportunity. So if you're somebody in the body say, I want to love somebody. Who can, I, who can I do a little act of love for? You can reach out to me or to your team leader would be the easiest thing. So be somebody else on your team or to Brother Tony. And we can get you... Uh, so-and-so's favorite movie is this, or so-and-so's favorite candy bar is this, or so, whatever, and then you can buy something that goes along with that, uh, or you can make something, because that's cheap. Uh, if you're not sure about what you can make, I actually bought a book this week that's in a three-ring binder, it's like this thick, and it's um, five-minute five minute gifts. They're crafts is what they are, and five-minute gifts, so in five minutes you can make a craft, that's, and they're, every single one of them is really cool, because I scanned through the book, and you can make somebody something very inexpensively out of stuff that you have at home, but a long line of theme is something you know they like. There's lots of ways. Send a card in the mail. That'll cost you about 50, 60 cents these days. Um, you can drop it off to their house if you have their address, or uh, you can give it to their team leader to take care of it, or you can give it to me and I'll take care of it. You want to send it anonymously, that's fine. Point is, uh, they will know us by our love for one another, so let us love one another. I hope you encouraged to do that. And, it, and uh, then also you'll note in your bulletin that there are a couple of games groups that do run. If you or anyone you know, there might be somebody in your neighborhood, somebody in your family, somebody that you just are talking to on the job or whatever, and you find out that they're a role player or they like to play board games or card games, whatever. That is an outreach tool that we have in the church that a lot of places do not have. And so you can say to them, hey, you know, we have a game, Christian games ministry at our church. Once you talk to them, and obviously 
we're not trying to lead people to games. We're leading people to Christ. But it's a great opportunity to get them plugged in with a Christian environment. A lot of times people sit around and play card games, board games, stuff like that. They get into saying or doing things maybe that they shouldn't. Um, because if they're not saved, that's just the way things go. So whatever you use, you use it in a way that does not honor God if you're not saved. And so Christians who are in that environment are oftentimes struggling. If you find a Christian and they want to play those games and they want to come into a Christian games group, they will, it'll be like a, a warm bath or a cool shower on a hot day for them. It'll be like greatly relieving to be able to play with people that they don't have to worry about it going in that direction. And so that's an opportunity. And there's, some of those are listed in the bulletin, but then we would start others if need be to make room for people. Um, and then so, and I will say that the role-playing games generally are limited to teenagers and up. So younger children, if they play, they play like only like a one-time deal, just a for fun thing, that kind of thing. But teenagers and up are allowed to play, and generally speaking, because it's it can be um, challenging to stay focused for four hours or whatever if you're if you're not ready for that. Okay. And then um, we're praying. Uh, heard a positive report about Carrie's bump uh, surgery. She called it surgery. So I'll use that word. Um, and she said it went pretty well. Has anybody heard anything different other than that after that? Okay, that's all I heard on Thursday was that it went pretty well, and all the bumps were removed and all the brains were left behind, which she was grateful for because she said she has a slight shortage in that area, so she can't get any up. <laughs> I didn't say that. So she was grateful that they all still work in the same way that they did previously. Um, and then, you know, pray for our, some of our others uh, who are still distancing because of concerns about COVID like that, moving toward vaccines, um, and each person has to pray about that and do it the way that God would want them to do it at the time that God wants them to do it and so on. And so um, I remember Miss June, who's not really been able to fellowship with, them, with fellowship with us on Sundays in quite a while because that, I think she's been here maybe one time in six months or more, uh, nine months, so she's, remember her, maybe send her an encouraging word or something, and then also uh, Perry and Stacy. Um, they're, they're yearning to get the vaccine uh, primarily because they have compromised immune systems and so does her parents and because they want to get back into the kingdom and do things for God. And they feel like that would be. Now, I'm not saying that's, that's the best way to do that. That's each person's call. But that's but the bottom line is they, they, they told me they can't wait so they can be free to do what God wants them to do. And they feel restrained from doing that. So just pray for them because their heart is aching and, uh, and that would get them back out and about, or that's how they feel they'll get back out and about, so, and then maybe others, uh, Mary Kay is another example, uh, Frank is going through some stuff, um, and he's not with us again today, and so just pray for him, and maybe others that are on your heart, is there someone, not that you'd call their name, if there's somebody else that's on your heart, if you're, if you're thinking of somebody who needs to pray for, we'll call that an unspoken request, just raise your hand, all right, praise God, okay, let's pray, hey dad, sorry, Oh, yes, beginning today, I apologize, beginning today, uh, we are taking up a love offering for Brother Steve Long, who is re- has, has retired, he has retired, and the Association of Churches would like to um, make, a do- make a donation, basically, to for him and his wife to have a nice retreat, and um, you'll hear a little bit more about it next Sunday. Um, I didn't want to do that this Sunday, because I... I was wrapped up in the Word until literally like an hour before I got here, so uh, that, that was not a high priority for me, but the bottom line is right now, we are picking up a love offering from Brother Steve, so we're asking that all members and regular tenders give something, and you give whatever you feel the Lord would lead you to give, and if that means it's a few cents, uh, if you go scrounging in the car for a change in the seat or in the couch, that's fine. If you ask somebody uh, you know, or do a little chore or something, make a little money, we're asking all members and regular tenders to give a little something to that. 
And if the Lord leads you to give greater, then give greater. Whatever uh, larger amount that he leads you to or whatever lower amount he leads you to. Okay? So we're just following the Lord's leading. And then whatever we collect, we'll go to the association and then they're going to give him a, a gift in April. So we really only have a couple of weeks to do this. Okay? And we will talk next week about it during announcements. So if you think the Lord is leading you to this week, be prepared to do so and then you'll hear a little bit more about it next week and then we can... Uh, we'll finish taking it up next week and maybe the following week. Okay? All right. Now let's pray. Father in heaven, you are amazing. Your light is too bright to stare into. You're incredible. Your power is so amazing that we, we can't hardly fathom it. We think about it and we can't hardly get it in our heads. It's exactly how capable you are. You're unending. You were around before the first matter came into being at your command. And you will be around forever. You are holy. You're, you're different than us. You're different than the way we are in our flesh and the sins that we do and the things that we do that are not, not really right. You're way different than that. And you call us to holiness. And at times we've, we've failed to be that as a people, as a nation, as a church, as individuals, as families, at times we've failed to be holy. But we wrote, as, as Lord, we understand that as long as you are at work in us and, and we have accepted you as our Lord and Savior, we're following Jesus, following you through Jesus. As long as we're in the fight, there is now no condemnation. There's no reason to feel guilty. But there might be a reason to come to you and say, I'm sorry. We're grateful that when we do just that, you are more than ready to forgive and to cleanse of all unrighteousness. And we thank you for that, Lord, for paying for it through the blood of your son, Jesus. A sinless man who died a sinner's death. God in the flesh. We thank you, Lord, for being with us every Sunday when we gather. And it seems amazing that you would do this for decades on end. Come here with us and worship with us and and fill us, and show us, and teach us. You'd prepare us, prepare the teachers, prepare the preacher, prepare the musicians, the singers. You've protected us and provided for us. We thank you so much. At the same time, we lift up the names of those who have been called out today, and others who are hurting whose names were not called. Lord, those whose whose names were on the hearts of those who raised their hands today, the unspoken requests. There's, there's a lot of pain, sorrow, and suffering, sighing on this road of holiness, and a lot of folks aren't even on the road of holiness, and it's not our position to judge who is and who isn't, Lord, but we know that there's a lot of difficulty in this life. And so we're asking you to intervene on behalf of your people and those who would look to you, as, we, as you've already promised you would. We are your seed. We're Abraham's seed. We're the seed of Jesus. Jesus is Abraham's seed. And we pray, Lord, that you would work in us in this day. That you would do your will here on the earth. And let us give you glory for it even now. In Jesus' name, amen.
Okay, we're at that moment where we ask ourselves, how has the Lord been speaking? So, how's he been speaking? What do you got? I brought my paper with me today. What did you read in the Bible this week? Anybody been doing, uh, please don't raise your hands, but if somebody really has and you've really been enjoying it, you could make it known, but anybody been doing Meals with Jesus? Our family has been doing it, mm, I would say, semi-consistently. <laughs> So we're on like uh, number 14, 15 if you're a family. Highly recommend it, uh, especially after the first few. There's like an activity you can do. The, the kids, we had the last one we did had an activity where somebody poured a water from up here and it was in a stream and the others had to try to catch it with a cup and not spill very much. But then at the same time, there were two other activities which was sorting out shells and what was this other thing? Putting toys away, I think, or sorting toys. And... Uh, you're supposed to do all three at the same time. We kind of messed it up, but the point is we're supposed to do all three at the same time, and it's an activity about distractions. And then the lesson was about being distracted and how easily it is to be distracted when you should be focused on the one most important thing. From Mary and Mark, pretty good stuff. So I recommend that. If you didn't get a copy of it, they were provided to you for free by your pastor. And so if you don't have a copy and you want a copy, please see me. I still have about a half dozen left, something like that. If you know a Christian family who would actually do it, uh, I'll give them one. Glad to do it. Okay? And if you're an individual, you can do it. You won't be able to do those little nitty-gritty activities, but you can still do it. There's a lot to be learned. So. All right, I'm going to read a story real quick. And then you got one too? I'll go first this time. You always go first. No, I was kidding. <laughs> All right. In the days of the Great Depression, a Missouri man named John Griffith was controller of a great railroad drawbridge across the Mississippi River. One day in the summer of 1937, he decided to take his eight-year-old son Greg with him to work. At noon, John Griffith put the bridge up to allow ships to pass and sat on the observation deck with his son to eat lunch. Time passed quickly. Suddenly, he was startled by the shrieking of a train whistle in the distance. He quickly looked at his watch and noticed it was 107. The Memphis Express, with 400 passengers on board, was roaring toward the raised bridge. He leapt from the observation deck and ran back to the control tower. Just before throwing the master, le master lever, he glanced down for any ships below. There, a sight caught his eye that caused his heart to leap poundingly into his throat. Greg had slipped, Greg, that's his son, had slipped from the observation deck and had fallen into the massive gears that operate the bridge. His leg was caught in the cogs of the two main gears. Desperately, John's mind whirled to devise a rescue plan, but as soon as he thought of a possibility, he knew there was no way it could be done. Again, with alarming closeness, the train whistle shrieked in the air. He could hear the clicking of the locomotive wheels over the tracks. That was his son there. Yet... There were 400 passengers on the train. John knew what he had to do. So he buried his head in his left arm and pushed the master switch forward. The great massive bridge lowered into place just as the Memphis Express began to roar across the river. When John Griffith lifted his head with his face smeared with tears, he looked into the passing windows of the train. There were businessmen casually reading their afternoon papers finely dressed ladies in the dining car sipping coffee, and children pushing long spoons into their dishes of ice cream. No one looked at the control house. No one looked at the great gearbox. With wrenching agony, John Griffith cried out at the steel train. 
I sacrificed my son for you people. Don't you care? The train rushed by, but nobody heard the father's words, which recalled Lamentations 1.12, which is where it says, Is it nothing to you all is it nothing to you all who pass by? I read that story and I thought, we got a lot going on. And some of it's God's stuff, and some of it's just sort of like maintenance stuff. I mean, like how many people were actively talking with God while they were getting dressed or eating breakfast or whatever you did yesterday at about 4 o'clock? We've got a lot of stuff going on. That train is roaring by. We must not miss the fact that God gave His Son for that second, too, for each moment. Some of the stuff that we're doing, there's no time for that. We should be all about God's stuff instead. How about you, Brother Tony Tate? Got a word? Yeah, All right, let's hear it. It's been, uh, Lord, you know, sometimes he just tells me, you know, you're going to go do this, and that's what you're going to do. So, okay, so I'll do it. So, <laughs> um, I'm saying we're glorious. No matter what it is, you know, in my face, I'm trying to say it louder and louder, but like, you know, people say good morning, I say glorious morning. I'm waiting for someone to say, what do you mean glorious? Because, you know, it's no one that's terrible day. You know, it's like, what's so glorious about it? You know, it's just the idea that it's glorious because of what God is doing. You know, they, they, no matter what, like, our lives, it doesn't dictate what God has already had. The authenticity, the author of life, you know, they gave us a new life. They gave us life again. I mean, it's just, it's just so glorious. And, uh, Amen. Um, and I, uh, it was funny, I was talking to my daughter, and it started up when I was talking to my daughter. She said that they, the greatest talks I'm talking to my daughter and my, and my son, and had a conversation, and, um, and he said something to her, and um, she was kind of sad. I said, why are you so sad? It's not even real. Like, she told you something you didn't even do. I said, you don't need to believe in something if it's not true. You know, it's like if I come up to you and say, you're a banana, I don't think you'd ever be upset ever because you're not a banana, you know, and... Um, and my conscience, as long as just being my conscience at that moment, I was like, but if I called you a banana like a thousand times, you'd probably believe it. And so that's what I've been like, okay, if I say glorious, a lot of it, maybe I actually believe it myself. The hard part is I don't believe it. You know, God himself, he is glorious. The angels call out, holy, 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 you know, who he is, you know. Um, and it, 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 it's us, our circumstances, his life itself, that we forget, you know, who we are and reminded of just what God has done. The other thing I thought about was, um, I guess it's like three, it's funny, like, there's three things that, like, one has been popping in my head for years, and it's actually been, like, the greatest thing ever. Uh, my brother one time said this line, and I thought I would never, ever think that would ever be, like, a survival line, but it really has been, because uh, he told me one time, he goes, you know, when you drink water, you need to, you need to swish it in your mouth, and it says it keeps you hydrated, and I didn't, like, my brother told me this like, 10 years ago. I'm like, why would you tell me such a thing about such a thing again? I was like, you know. But, like, for the last 10 years, because it's so hot at my factory, I get dry mouth, like, all the time. And so <laughs> the swish in this water has actually kept me, like, like just able to get through the day. And it's like, seriously, like, this one little thing that was spoken over years ago. Like, like all the things I can remember. Like, that is, like, the greatest tip I've ever had. I mean, it has kept me on the long run. And then there's other, there's just these two things, you know, I just ask you too. What has the Lord been speaking to you? Something to think about. 
Um, he usually speaks to me through movies I watch as many more. I just thought this was awesome. Here's two lines. I'm not going to tell you the movie. You want to come back and tell me later. I'll play a game where you think these came from. Uh, what movies do you think these came from? Here's the two. You can't tell me now. You can tell me later. But uh, here's one. And a lady says this. She says, I had to do what is right, even though my heart, or even though my heart felt that, or that's the same one. I had to do what's right, even though my heart doesn't feel like it. That's mm -hmm. one line. Another line was, this one's easy because we're saying still good. But they said, Asgard's not a place, it's a people. I thought it was so cool. And, you know, it's really, really cool. Think about it. And that's why I want to go off. Asgard's not a place, it's a people. You know, it's not really, you know, what we have and what we can do and all. It, it's it's who people are. You know, it, it's it's who they're supposed to be. Right. You know, it's really not a place. And God doesn't look at the earth and say, wow, I created this amazing thing. You know, he looks at creation and says, wow, I just can't wait to see what they can do. I just can't mm -hmm. wait to see what the world is capable of. You know, of course, we sin before God, and then it's like, you know, but he still reaches in and says that I still want to see what this world is capable of. You know, and so what a glorious day today. Something to think about. Amen. Anyone else? Okay. A little bit of what he was just saying kind of caught me, and it's the fact that it's in that movie it says, as far as the people, well, that's how God sees the church. Amen. God doesn't see the church as a building, as a meeting place. God sees the church as his people. Mm -hmm. So wherever his people gather, that's the church. Mm -hmm. So if you're ever in, you ever think that, oh, well, I can have church in my home by myself, then that's not true because the church is the gathering of the people. It's not mm -hmm. the gathering of a person. Right. So good word. I don't, I, I, I've heard a lot of people say that, well, I can just go to church in my own house because that, that's good enough. And, and it, it's dawned on me just recently, just now, that you know that's not true at all. God doesn't want us to worship by ourselves. God calls us to the church, which is the gathering of the people. Mm -hmm. So it's not just the building. You're not going to a building. You're going to the gathering of his people to learn and grow in him. Yeah. We lose that in the English, actually. When you see the word church in the New Testament, almost every time the word church occurs, it's the word ecclesia. And what it literally means is a called out assembly, in this case of believers, or a called out assembly of people. So to have, so you have to have the assembly in order to be the church, and you have to be called out to be the church. So you get people to gather together and claim to be a church, but they are not called by God, called out of darkness or out of sin or whatever, so then they wouldn't be the church. And there's people that are not gathering, but they claim to be called out, but maybe they are called out, but they're not gathering. So Bottom line is when you see that word church, ecclesia, it means the called out assembly, in this case, of believers. And so you miss that in the English, but it's there. Every time you read your Bible and see the word church, think of the called out assembly. And it really kind of enlightens those passages a lot better. I didn't have that problem in the day because by the time the scriptures were written down, as we have the New Testament and stuff like that was cemented down, the church was well in existence and everybody knew who it was and what it meant. And there was no problem using the word church in English because everybody knew what that meant. Um, that they, they thought of it as going to be with God's people, which is a good way of looking at it. But now, you just, we, if you're a first-generation Christian, I was born again at 25 years old, first-generation Christian, essentially, um, you got to know that. they realize it's the called-out assembly. That's what God is talking about. And the New Testament, of course, was written to the called-out assembly. The entire thing, Matthew, 
1-1 through the end of Revelation was all written through and to and in the called out assembly of God's people. Some people say, well, I can read my Bible and I don't have to go to church. That's another problem because, or I don't have to be with the church because it was written in, to, by, through, all that, the people of God called out assembly, the church. So, pretty good stuff. Anybody else? Aaron? I have a little video. Okay, we have a little video back there. I'm going to step out of the way. Basically, 
across this video is um, that's what the world is becoming. The world's messed up, so everyone falls victim to those like flights that we have this every day, like people over half of relationships in the US and divorce, schools are kids are in danger to go to school. Like their lives are in danger. Um, millions of people die of epidemic every day or every year. And we we just think that's normal at this point. And the devil has a grip on the United States and we In, in your right mind, I mean, chess players in the room think this through. Uh, if you've ever, uh, military tacticians, football players, whatever, if you think about it, exactly how elaborate and how far in advance would a person have to work to pull off some of these schemes that we're talking about? So if, if the play was, you know, this perfectly divine trick, designed trick play in football, how many times do you practice that play? How far ahead do you prepare it? You know, when do you get it to the players? If it was, you're thinking like in chess, if it's this perfect move that you can do like move 12, and if they fall in that trap, there's no way that they can win. How far, you know, do you practice that? Do you study it? Do you look ahead? The plot that has been enacted, it, for example, in certain, and I'm not, I'm not trying to be kind of slandery or anything like that, but in certain areas of our society to teach young people for a progressive, liberal, non-conservative, non-biblical, non-godly method of living, that plot is not new. It didn't start recently. And if it started generations ago, then who started it? It wasn't my dad or my granddad, right? Because it was already well afoot by then. It's obvious that it was the enemy. It's obvious that it's spiritual nature, and it's obvious that it's evil spirits backing this ploy to win people away from what God calls us to be. And if you know that that's the case, then you also know that no human being one-on-one -on -one, is sufficient to go against the devil. If you want to say that's so, but it isn't. It's not, it's not Dan that's greater than he that's in the world, but he that is in me that's greater than he that is in the world. That plot began a long time before I was born, and the day I got saved, he lost his grip on me. He lost that battle. And it's the same for you. If you've been saved, you lost that battle for you. But we're still in a war very mightily for other people in the world who are falling prey to a plot that was hatched generations ago, thousands of years ago, really, right? And we, we need to realize that who the enemy is. He, he wasn't born yesterday. He's not an old gray-haired guy with a sword cane, right? He's been around, and if you, if you met him in person, which you probably never will, we probably never will, except maybe on the day that... 
every knee shall bow and every tongue confess, he'll probably be there bowing and confessing because if he has knees, then he'll be there, right? But the point is, other than that, you probably, but he would look good, you know, young, strong, powerful, maybe glowing, <laughs> whatever, might look like an angel. But the point is, his plots are very seductive and they've been going on for, a, for millennia and we shouldn't think that anything short of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit of God and God himself are going to stop that. And to think that we can go out and become politically active or we can start a school or we can... Just in your own family. You are completely dependent upon God to do that in your family. Don't think you can do it. You can't. You're com- we are completely dependent on God to turn back that plot. Which is, as Aaron said... By the way, that, that is not... that. Well, you just heard it, but that's not actually new. That's... Um, yeah, it's from like 1956. Yeah, he actually said it in 56, and it was already, he could already see all of that developing, and it was, and it really did develop largely between like 50 and 80, 50 and 90, and like that. How accurately really sort of describes our current society. Yeah, how accurately. Yeah, because he could already see it. He could see the plot developing. He's really naming the plot. It hadn't come to fruition fully yet. That's, that, that happened later. He's gone to be, theoretically gone to be with the Lord. If he was a Christian, he's not with us anymore. But his words remain Well, I don't know where else you can be that people say you're a Christian country and you don't have Christ. I don't think there's anything worse than that. <laughs> the rest of the world sees the U.S. as a Christian country, and our country is not largely following Christ, and that's about the worst place you could possibly be, I think. So if it's a country that doesn't know Christ, the missionaries are going there trying to win, at least, at least they know who they are. You know, But kidding yourself that you're a Christian when you're not is probably the worst place you could possibly be. All right, well, let's pray together. Don't get depressed about it, because our God is still on the throne. He is still overcoming. He is still winning souls. And as Aaron put out, we do see people come to know Christ. We have come to know Christ. If you're here today and you are not a follower of Lord Jesus Christ, right now in your heart, say, okay, Lord, take my life. Make me new. And I'll follow you for the rest of my days. And praise him for forgiving your sins and for paying for them. And just be willing to live for him for the remainder of your life. You've got to do that. Um, and that's, where, that's when you truly win and are set free. All right, let's pray. God in heaven, thank you so much for these words. We know that they have been sent from you. We hear them with our ears, but there is this this gripping of them, this reaching up and snatching of them with that renewed heart that is within us. To realize that we are spiritual warriors on a spiritual stage, and even the evil spirits and the demons and the angels look at us and say, whoa, Look at him. when we do what's what's yours, when we let you act through us. They look at us and they go, "Wow, <laughs> how can we compete with that?" Let them wow, Lord. Let them see those who are reaching new heights in Jesus as you work in us as untouchable. Let, let them see the, us as protected. Let them come in all kinds of creative ways, and yet let us stand behind the shield of faith and all the spiritual armor with the sword of truth, the sword of your word, Holy Spirit, sword of your word, not our sword, but your sword. And if Jesus is coming again today, Lord, then let us be ready. And if we have time, then let us be about your business. We ask you to bless the tithes and offerings and the little bit of our worship that remains and the lesson that the kids are about to go to and the message that you laid so heavily and yet so lightly, so excitedly on my heart today. 
And I just pray, God, that no person would leave this building without allowing you to address their spiritual condition, to heal the hurts of our heart, and to unleash us on a lost and dying world as a source of light and life. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Pardon, you have my PowerPoint. Somebody get it up. We don't have to have it if we don't have it, but it would be nice. Okay, we'll look for it in the meantime because we can use it again later if need be. Um, I shared it with you via your email, if that helps in any way. Yours and um, Josh's and Aaron's. <laughs> All right. So as, as you realize, I'm sure, we are at the end. Today marks the end of the sermon series on the circumcision. The conclusion of this, it's called a Renewal, the Conclusion of the Circumcision is today's title. And so briefly, I want to go, just very, very briefly, like two minute briefly, I want to go back over so we make sure we're on the same page. We started with cutware unfair. The Jewish people, the Israelite people were circumcised in the flesh, the foreskins of their penises. And that was very painful for them and would theoretically lead them to obedience as a faith move and that kind of thing. We are cut rather in a spiritual way, circumcised of the heart, if you will, or circumcised in the spirit. Second sermon was on spirit over the letter. And so now we, we, we were learning that this word, albeit good and meaning truth and life and leading to truth and life, that now we are led by the Holy Spirit of God and cleansed by the Holy Spirit of God and circumcised by the Holy Spirit of God rather than by this word. Okay? Then we went into freed by and we talked about the things of Christianity, things of the kingdom, things of God that actually make us free. You remember we talked about living for an audience of one uh, not following, quote-unquote, rules of faith so much as um, following the truth, okay? And then last week, RJ brought us a sermon called Life Done Confidently, and the sum, some of that essentially was, without uh, dismissing any portion of it, was that you can only live confidently in God, that our confidence should be in God, and you can only live confidently in God, and to be confident or self-confident without God is almost like a spiritual suicide, and it's not a good thing at all. And so that's, that was the sermon series to this point. And now we're going to kind of sum that up and bring it to a conclusion as we talk about the renewal from Scripture. Okay, And we will use as our text for the day Colossians 2, the chapter 2 through 3.17. And we'll come back to that in a moment. But first, I want to talk to you about how most people think life goes. Our best understanding of the way life actually works when it comes to personality or decisions, okay? So the first thing is what's called admissions. So people admit certain things are true. When I was going through school, for example, uh, for a while I admitted that evolution was true. That's what my teacher said, and I kind of went, yeah, I guess it kind of sort of makes sense. But at the same time, I had uh, kind of admitted that God might be real. And so we admit things, and we kind of go, eh, makes sense. And that's that's pretty much the first stage of making a decision in your head. The second, if you will, then is belief. Admissions first, belief second. So if something that you admit to be true then takes on shape for you and you begin to believe it. So-and-so told me that my boyfriend was cheating on me and you go, well, I don't want to admit that that's true, but I better check it out. You check it out and find out, yes, indeed, it was true. And then you go, oh, now I'm upset. <laughs> now I'm going to do something about it. Before it was, eh. Now it's, Ugh. 
right? It changes your demeanor, what you're going to do about the thing between the admission that it might be true, shrug, or the belief that it is true, and now you've got to do something. And then the final step, if you will, and this is where Christians sort of tend to hang their hats, and it's where we try to live our lives, although I think from the text we're going to see today that it isn't the best place to actually be, so we're going to be, stand corrected by the Bible a little bit, but it's convictions. Convictions, then, are you take something deep. This matters to you. We talk about, for example, uh, in the area of money management. I am of a strong conviction that all Christians should have a plan for how their money comes in and how their money goes out. It should include tithing, giving above and beyond the tithe. Uh, They should work in a career or get paid in a place that honors God. So I, I have certain convictions about money. And those convictions then drive my admissions and my beliefs. So in other words, if I, if I believe that and somebody comes up to me and they say, well, you know, hey, I, I, can't, uh, I can't do that. I can't live by a spending plan or I can't tithe, then I'm going to go, no, I don't believe you. <laughs> I mean, I, I hear what you're saying, but I, I really don't accept it, right? So I'm not going to go, eh, okay, you say so, fine, because I have a conviction. My conviction is too deep. Now, if I had a belief that it were true, but not a conviction. In other words, it doesn't drive my A's and B's. It doesn't drive my actions. If I had a belief, but not a conviction, then they come up and they go, well, I can't. And I say, well, why not? And they say, well, because of X, Y, and Z. And if I believe X, Y, and Z, then I add to my beliefs like, oh, you know what? I see what you're saying. That makes sense to me. So I agree with you. In your case, that's an exception. You can't. I believe that. Or maybe I would, I'm not that worried about it. It's up to them. It's between them and the Lord. And I just kind of shrug and go, ah, okay, whatever you say. You say you can't, fine. Because I don't have a conviction. But if I have a conviction, then it drives my future A's and B's. So from now on, every time I would go, eh, okay, or uh, is affected by my convictions. Okay? Example, let's take, go back to the boyfriend example. You find out your boyfriend is cheating on you. You may have a conviction that inside boyfriend-girlfriend relationship, there will be none of that. That anybody who has ever cheated on you, that's it. They're out the door. And personally, I have a conviction of that. I think that's true back from when I was dating and stuff like that. And I, and I would never cheat on my wife, and I don't believe she would ever cheat on me. So I have a conviction of that. If, somebody, if that's the person that they are, they don't deserve you. Out the door. But you might only have a belief. So you go talking to them about it, and they go, well, you know, it was only one time. It was just a mistake, and it was just an accident. And you go, oh, okay, well... You know, I really like them, and I don't want to hurt them, and I don't want them to hurt. I don't want to be hurt. I don't want to break up. Breakups are always such a bummer. And so you go, ah, okay. And you admit that this one time was an exception. So you didn't really have a conviction. You had a belief that it was wrong, but you didn't have a conviction. Okay. So now we understand the difference between admissions, beliefs, and convictions. Now, if you go to the next slide, you're two slides behind, actually. not going. Okay, so now this is the next one. So you see the admissions, you see the beliefs, and you see the convictions, right? But there has to be a transition. People are not stagnant. Like, I, have the, I admit this, I believe this, and I'm convicted of this, and it's always going to be that, right? People are changing. They are growing based on their circumstances. They learn more. We see that a lot in Scripture. You read something in Scripture, and you, and you move it from a yeah, that could be to a, huh, I believe that, yeah. You know? And if you really are led by the Spirit and you really care, then when you read in the Scripture, you go, okay, now I have a conviction. So it's even further. And the transitions, each down the chart, if you'll follow my logic, each one is more spiritual than the previous. 
So when you, somebody says something to you and you don't really care, but you kind of agree because they made a good argument or whatever, you go, eh, no, that's not spiritual at all. That's the opposite of spiritual. You literally don't care. You didn't even half listen to what they were saying. You just, eh, whatever. You say it's true, I'll just accept it. Right? But then when you move it to beliefs, now you're going to go, wait a minute, what did you say? Repeat that again. Okay. That does make a lot of sense. And now you take it and it becomes more spiritual so it can affect your future admissions. Down the chart is more spiritual. Things move from just a eh, understanding to a really significant thing in your heart, right? And each time is more so than the last. So if you take an admission, for example, somebody told you about Jesus and you went, no, I, I believe Jesus was a guy who lived and... And then they say, well, but he was the God the Son in the flesh. He died on the cross for sins. And if you believe in him, you can have eternal life. And you went, oh, I don't know. Okay, I've been thinking about that. Yeah, okay, I processed it. Yeah, I believe that. Yeah. All right, so you believe and you pray and you ask God. Now, according to what the scripture says, belief is faith. You've opened a channel to God. And God, by his grace, delivers salvation. Okay? So he gives you the free gift of being saved because you went from eh to uh-huh. Right? So you went to believing. Then, as a Christian then, you have to develop convictions out of that belief that, that certain things come out of there. If he is the Son of God and he died on the cross for my sins, then he has right to be Lord of my life. Now, that should have been tied up in your belief, but now you're breaking it down. You're going, he has right to be Lord of my life. So when he tells me to do something, I have to do it. I believe that. No, I've done it when he tells me to do it, and it always works out. Or I've done it when he tells me to do it, and I always feel that Holy Spirit saying, yes, that's the right thing to do. And so I've developed a conviction. So now every time I know what the Lord wants me to do, I'm going to do it because I have a conviction. So moving down the chart, it becomes more spiritual and increasingly less just in your head. Right? So people say, I know it. Right? Some people say, I believe in God. Do you believe in God? I believe that God exists. I even believe that God sent his son Jesus to the earth. Do you believe that he has right to be Lord of your life? And have you prayed and accept Jesus Christ? No, not really. Not. Well, you believe in God? So do the demons. And they tremble. See, because they actually have a conviction about God's power and his holiness, they tremble. You just have a belief. You think God exists. So that's not going to save you. right? But if the belief includes the fact that he has right to be Lord of your life and that God raised Jesus from the dead, then... You pray to God, confessing with your mouth, and then you let other people know, now you're saved. You're born again, according to what Scripture says. So you can see how it works its way down the chart, becomes less just in your head, and more spiritual. All right. Remember that this whole sermon series is about being circumcised in the heart, which is what the Bible talked about. So now we're bringing all of that together today in this one thing, in the renewal that God talks about in Scripture. Okay, so now we're going to go to Scripture. We have a relatively long text, but we'll, we will not break down everything as we go through it, but we'll, get, we'll try to understand it the best we can with a sort of relatively quick pass. Okay, so grab your Bibles if you would. Maybe, amen, hoot, holler, say, come on, Lord. Colossians chapter 2. Amen. Thank you. All right, this is God's Word, and here we go. Colossians 2, beginning of verse 1. For or because I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea and for all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ himself. Okay, then break it down just real quick. So Paul was praying for them, even though he had never seen the face to first, face to face, he was hoping that their hearts would be encouraged that they as a church would be knit together in love, they would become unified, that they would reach out for or attain 
all the wealth, it means all the good things, not money, but all the good things that come from the full assurance of understanding. When you really know you know, all this good stuff comes. And that's what I want for you. That's what Paul is saying. Resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery. That is Christ himself. If you want to know Jesus, I mean really actually want the true knowledge of Jesus, then there's a sort of an equation there. It results in the true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ himself, and it comes with the full assurance of understanding, which comes with the wealth that, or is really the wealth that you're reaching out for. It's what Christians are supposed to be after, and that's what Paul wanted for them. Then he says, in whom are hidden, this is Jesus, in Jesus is hidden, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with persuasive argument. In other words, in Jesus, there's a lot of knowledge, a lot of valuable insight, things you can do, things you shouldn't do, growth, etc. But others are going to come and they're going to bring knowledge out of somewhere else. There's going to be other ideas and other teachings. And he says, all wealth... are." All this wealth of Christ himself, the wisdom and the knowledge, all comes out of Jesus. If it doesn't come out of Jesus, you don't want anything to do with it. It doesn't matter how good it is. And he says, I say this so that no one may delude you with a persuasive argument. In other words, that they couldn't get you to admit something or believe something that's not of God. Right? Okay. Then he says in 5, For even though I am absent in body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. Verse 6, as you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. In other words, as you received him, that's how you live. That's how you're going to live now. Having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith. Now, I'm going to say to you that most people, when they read this, they're following our model, right? So first they admitted Jesus was real, then they believed it, and now he's trying to lead them to convictions. He's trying to lead them to a, a life founded on something more established, more firm, right? Like the bulletin says, Jesus is my rock, right? That's, that's the logic that most people, when they read this, and I'm going to show you by the time we're done, that there is a, a fault in that logic, okay? So pay close attention. Get your thinking caps on. Having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. Now notice he says that they would be firmly rooted and built up just as they were instructed, past tense, you follow the logic? So he's saying, I want you to be this, which you were already taught to be. It's circular, essentially. And then he says, and overflowing with gratitude. So now that you are that, you should, your actions should be showing gratitude. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. So basically, he is ruling out admissions. You follow the logic? So people come and try to get you to admit something that is not of God. He's saying, you can't do that. I'm setting you up with a system in which you can't do that, which right away shows you the flaw with the idea that we start with the admissions, then go to beliefs, and then go to convictions, right? He's saying, no, you can't have any more admissions. That's what he said. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the traditions of men, according to the elementary principles of the world. So people are going to bring in other teachings that are not specifically of God and you cannot have any admissions rather than according to Christ. So somewhere Christ comes in. Now if you had, if you could say I have an, I'm going to be facetious for a second. If you can say I have an admission that comes out of Jesus, then you could have admissions, right? But what's the problem with that? If you're a follower of Lord Jesus Christ and Jesus tells you to do something, do you shrug? Do you say, oh yeah, I get it. Okay, I guess I'll do it. 
Do you reluctantly agree with him? Do you catch it on a surface level? No. If God says do this and you know it's from God, you do it with a conviction, deep, something deeper even. Right? You don't go back. If God says, render under Caesar what's Caesar's as an answer to your question, then you've got to figure out exactly how does that matter and it goes deep right away. Because God said it. If God legitimately said it, then there's no admissions. Right? That's why I say he's saying there's no more admissions. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. In other words, all that is God, everything that is God is in Jesus. And in him you have been made complete. You have been made complete. You follow that logic? You're already done. And he is the head over all rule and authority. In other words, no matter who comes in and tells you, no matter how strong they are, if they've got guns, badges, laws, if it makes perfect sense, if it's totally reasonable, if it fits with what you want or what they want, none of that. He is the head over all rule and authority. And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. That's what this whole sermon series is about. In the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. In other words, Jesus circumcised us, our bodies were removed from the equation. Notice that admissions happen where? Remember, they're considerably less spiritual. As you go up the chart, admissions are less spiritual. Admissions basically happen in your body. You see it with your eyes. There have been people, for example, that absolutely were certain who shot somebody. I saw him do it. They're positive. Only for later, all evidence to prove to the contrary. They're bad eyewitnesses. They saw it with their eyes, but they were wrong in what they saw. Completely wrong. And so he's saying, your body, that which you assess in the flesh, no more. That's done. It says even this, having been buried, verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God. In other words, you are no longer making your decisions based on what your body wants or what your mind thinks, etc. And it says, who raised him from the dead? Verse 13, and when you were dead in your transgressions, that means before you got saved, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, that means before you got the spiritual circumcision that we're talking about, he, capital he, capital H, he, God, made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. In other words, that in that moment, boom, you were made alive, born again, 14. Having canceled out the certificate of death, consisting of decrees against us, and which was hostile to us. See, we broke the law, even if it was a law we made ourselves, we broke the law, we were sinners against God, dead in our transgressions, and he killed all that. He took all that away. And he even says, and as he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, hear that phrase very closely, he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, anyone who could make you do anything, he disarmed them, he made a public display of them, in other words, he mocked them, he made a joke out of them, he let them show up and be powerful, and then he went, you're nothing, and swept them out of the way, in a clean sweep. He made a joke out of them. He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him, that is Jesus. Therefore, let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. So notice the therefore, and basically what he's saying is, all these rules that try to, people try to put into place about how you're supposed to worship, about how you're supposed to do things, all those rules, they do not have the power and authority anymore because... You were set free, right? God triumphed over them, essentially. There's a little bit more to it than that, but simplistically saying, he's saying, nobody can tell you what to do in the spiritual arena. 17. Things which are a mere shadow of which is to come. Those things don't even begin to qualify. You know that tabernacle, the huge building tent thing that they built to worship God? That 
Moses saw an image of what it was really like in heaven and they made a tiny replica. It was huge, you know, with a bowl and the altar and a bowl and the incense and the, the inner area, the outer, it's all of it. It's a huge thing that they made with wonderful craftsmanship and that was a tiny replica of what it's like in heaven. These, everything that we ever get in the way of orders to worship on earth is a small, tiny replica of what's really coming. Back to the beginning of 17. Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting, and listen to this, in self-abasement, and there was like, like over self-control, like trying to take things away from you, from yourself, and the worship of angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen. So people come and try to tell you what they saw, but it's not scriptural, it's not of God. Inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, they think they know better than you, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the entire body, being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, grows with a growth which is from God. That's talking about the church. As we were talking about the church, called out body of believers, uniquely linked together, and as we work and follow God, we grow. Verse 20. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? So, in other words, if someone told you, let's give an example. Uh, Say you're professing to be a Christian. And then someone told you that adultery, uh, let's use a better example, slander, talking bad about somebody, or gossip, talking out of school, right? talking about them behind their back, that kind of thing. Someone told you that that's sin. And you go, yeah, I see that. It's in Scripture. It's sin. I believe that. And so you stop doing it. You stop doing it because you believed it. Because you believed it was wrong. And then you sometimes fell back into it. And then one time you did it and somebody found out about it and your whole life blows up. Your relationships are all messed up and everything. And you're like, I'm not going to do that anymore. And so now you develop a conviction and you move toward not doing it because you really know it's wrong to talk about people behind their back and to slander them, talk bad about them, right? Even if you're telling the truth. So then you say, well, I'm not going to do that because it's a rule. Listen to me. I know this is hard to swallow. This is exactly what Paul is saying you cannot do. But isn't it what the church majors in? In Matthew 18, we see somebody in sin and we go to them and we say, hey, you're in sin. You shouldn't do that. You should repent and turn from that. And they go, oh, you know, you're right. I, I need to stop. And they supposedly repent. They turn back to God and they stop doing what's wrong. And on the surface, it seems like something good happened there. But this is the exact thing that Paul says you cannot do. If you died with Christ to elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? which all refer to things destined to perish with the using, in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. These are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom. So somebody comes to you and they say, look, you know, you shouldn't do this because of X. It sounds like wisdom. It really does. And if it lines up with Scripture, it's good that you stop doing it. You should do it because it's sin. But he's saying you can't do it because you recognize the rule. You can't do it because you accept it or even believe it, or even develop a conviction out of it. He's ruling all of that out because he's talking about dying to worldly sin and living a new life. And so he's saying in this new life, we don't do that anymore. That is not who we are about. You can't tell people, for example, who don't know the Lord what the right way to do things are by the Lord because they don't know the Lord. They're not going to morally stand up under that. They're just going to go, what do you know? Right? And that just looks bad for Christianity then, whatever, you're losing the battle from the beginning. And if you go to other Christians and you tell them what they should do, and they do it only because you told them they should do it, Paul is saying, you can't do that. 23. These are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom 
in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. In other words, when you tell somebody not to sin, that really doesn't help them at all. When they admit that you're right and they stop sinning, that really doesn't help them at all. When they believe that you're right and they stop sinning a little more proficiently, that really doesn't help them at all. When they develop a conviction about it because they've seen how badly it usually works out and they really stop and they go 10 years without doing the thing that you tell them not to do, that really doesn't help them at all. That's what he's saying. Now chapter 3. If you will, let me just title this The Alternative. If then you have been raised up with Christ... Keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. That verse right there could probably be the life mantra for any Christian. Set your minds on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. Because, or for, you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. In other words, if you are about anything that's going on down here, if your life is about anything that's going on down here, good, bad, or ugly, then your life is about the wrong thing. So if your life is about sports, if your life is about games, if your life is about hobbies, if your life is about money, if your life is about your wife or your husband or your school, if your life is about those things, then your life is about the wrong thing because your life is actually hidden in Christ with God. And so you're creating for yourself with the pieces left over that are not in Christ something that looks like life. And the way people do that is they, uh, they admit certain things, they believe certain things, they come up with certain convictions. This is why the power of God is not in that process because they're starting at the top, working down, becoming a little more spiritual. We, t- we talk about progressive sanctification, which is a biblical term that means that you're making progress in becoming more holy. Progressive sanctification. And we call progressive sanctification admitting, then believing, then convictions. And if you've got strong convictions and you're living them out, you have progressed more than you might otherwise have or more than somebody else have has. Yeah, there you go. Somebody else has. And he is saying that's just not the way it works. Your life, the total of your success is already hidden in Christ with God. And so as you try to pick up the pieces and admit things and believe things and become convicted about things, realize you're really working with something less than what God really has in store for you. A little bit more. Four, when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body. In other words, that means the parts of you. Consider your parts as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, greed, which amounts, all amounts to idolatry. See, if we took a command that says, don't do anything immoral, or don't do this because it's immoral, or that immoral act is a sin, and we followed it because of that, that would be wrong. That would be starting with an admission, moving to a belief, moving to a conviction, and moving away from immorality. But actually what he says is, rather, just consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. In other words, you can't do it, not because you know it's wrong, but because it's not who you are. Verse 6, 
For it is on account of these things that the wrath of God will come, and in them you also once walked when you were living in them. In other words, the opposition of God. God opposes those things. And, to be clear, you can't not do those things because God opposes them. So you can't not do something immoral because God will punish you. That's called sorcery. God hates sorcery. Right? You can't not do something immoral because of the bad results it will have in your circle. Because that's called hypocrisy. Right? We used to be in those things, but now we died to those things and have been raised again and our life is in Christ with God. Verse 8. But now you also put them all aside. Put these things aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. Again, the old self is laid aside. All that stuff went to the side. 2 Corinthians 5, right? All old things have passed away. We don't not lie because lying is wrong. We don't lie because that's not who we are. And you would be, at best, working under the model that we have been working under so far, which he's describing a different model, isn't he? You'd be admitting that lying is wrong while continuing to do it. Then eventually you'd say, well, I now believe lying is wrong, and you move a little more away from it and get a little spiritual help. Then you move even further away to convictions, and you mostly stop, but you're still doing it a little bit. And getting a little more spiritual and a little more spiritual. But no little more spiritual efforts will ever get you to where you're actually trying to go, or if you're already a Christian, where you're actually already at. Okay? So beginning in 9, he says, Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being, here it is, renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. Let me say it again. The new self is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. And then verse 11, which might be our key verse for the day. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free man, but Christ is all and in all. In other words, it doesn't matter where you came from, how messed up you are, how bad the things you did were, how much money you have, what your clothes look like, what your skin looks like, how old you are, how young you are, whatever. When you encounter this, this is available to you. And so, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. In other words, you should forgive anyone that you have a complaint against. Not because it's the right thing to do, but because that's the new you. And beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another. Now this starts to talk about the activities of the church. With all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. End of story. It does go further. It talks about families and how wives, what husbands should treat their wives and how wives treat their husbands. And it talks about people working, uh, like workers and slaves and all that's all in there. But the bottom line is you already see the pattern that God has laid out for us. Okay, next slide. Next slide. That was last slide. Okay, here we go. So here we are again. Here's our model, right? We have the admissions at the top. Shrug. We have 
transitions it's a little bit more spiritual, believe, we start to apply it and do something about it. Transition a little bit more spiritual, we develop convictions, and now that affects our future admissions and beliefs, and we're going we're gonna to live that out because we have a conviction, right? And for the longest time as a Christian, this is what I've been told is basically success. The more convictions you have and the more you live out your convictions, the more successful you are being as a Christian. That is progressive revelation. And I talked to an old guy who's been a Christian for 50 years, and he talks to me about how he finally, after 20 years, got around to reading his Bible every day. I realize he, I think to myself, oh, he developed a conviction that he should read his Bible every day and he finally started doing it. So maybe someday I'll get there too. Right? So that's the image that we've been given of, of Christian growth. It's wrong. It is fundamentally flawed because there is something below convictions or above convictions, depending on how you want to look at it. But the next step then, what Paul's talking about is the circumcision of the heart. Talking about a renewal that comes from the inside by the Holy Spirit being born again at salvation. Talking about living water, as Jesus talked about, saying, the living water will fill you up. He who drinks from this well, that is me, will never be thirsty. There are a lot of things in life that use this process against us. But the bottom line is, the process really starts with the circumcision of the heart, not with the admissions. Now, I get it. And I will even admit that before we got saved, most of us went, I'm starting to think this might be real. I had an admission that Christianity might be real, and I went to church, and I sat there for six months and listened to the scripture. Listened to the preacher. Listened to what was going on. I began to admit that. But all that led me to do was to listen for what he was saying. And there was a moment in time in which I said, I think I basically believe what he's saying. I think I basically believe what he's saying. But it didn't save me. Then I called out to him in my belief. I said, okay, God. And then what did he do? By his grace, he saved me. He renewed my heart. He made me born again. He started me on the journey of living for God. Right? And from that moment on, I now realize, although I had misconstrued most of my Christian growth along the pattern of admissions, belief, convictions, and living out my convictions, and allowing my convictions to affect my beliefs and my admissions, right? And while I had most of my life I've lived out thinking that was the way it actually goes, I now realize, looking back from the moment I got saved, that actually what happened was God gave me a new heart at the moment I got saved. And from that point on, everything else, I was just discovering the abilities of my new heart, discovering the growth of my new heart. I was overcoming my weaknesses in the flesh and putting them away. And as we talked about, the Holy Spirit was at work killing sin in me. And things like that. So it was just me, new me, being me. It wasn't me becoming new me over and over again, developing new convictions or admissions and beliefs. It was something different. Now, in the world, we see this another way, and we're already coming toward the conclusion. The sermon structured a little differently today than what's normal. For example, opiates, alcohol, nicotine, addictions of a variety of kinds, all work at essentially a cellular level. They get in your cells, and your cells yearn, for example, for alcohol. So your cell, you might be fine not drink for six weeks or six months or six years, and then your bicep cells in your arm are going, I really need some alcohol. We used to have that. Whatever happened to that? And the thigh cells are going, I need some alcohol. I used to have that. Whatever happened to that? And next thing you know, you're back to drinking again. It happens at a cellular level. Now, what does that sound like? It sounds like a conviction, right? So the enemy or the flesh or the world or substances in the world build up in a person, they connect up in a person to create essentially a conviction. 
and they will say or do things out of that conviction, driven by that conviction, etc. But that conviction doesn't do them any good. It's not going to save them. At best, it's going to, in the case of drugs, for example, it's going to screw up their health, screw up their life, screw up their relationships, and probably land them in jail or dead. Right? It's never good. But it, it acts like a conviction. False religion, same way. Right? So, repeated actions with expected results develop into convictions. So, for example, if I, uh, if I make a plan to always keep my gas tank above half a tank, and I always go to the gas station whenever it gets down to half a tank, and I do that consistently for 10, 15 years, and I'm sitting with my buddy, and we're talking about running out of gas, and I say, I haven't run out of gas for 15 years. And he says, oh, well, good for you. I've run out a couple of times. And I said, well, why do you do that? Don't you keep your gas tank above half level? So I've always done that. Ever since I figured out I would never run out of gas, I would, and I've developed a conviction, it's driving my actions, I'm doing it. And I tell that guy, and he admits, he says, you know, I admit that I don't like running out of gas. I guess I would I'd probably do the same thing. And then he believes it. But, you know, because it wasn't his idea, sometimes he keeps his gas tank above half and sometimes he doesn't because he doesn't really even have it as a belief yet, just as an admission. See, this is how this works in the world. But because I repeated the action of always keeping my gas tank, I don't do this, by the way, but I'm giving an illustration. But anyway, if I repeated the action of keeping it above half and I never run out of gas, it's been 15 years and I'm perfectly content with that, I develop a conviction. Then somebody borrows my car and returns it at three-eighths. Now I'm mad at them because I always keep my car above half and they returned it at three-eighths. See, that's what we do. That's what humanity does. We're processing things by admission, belief, and conviction. And the enemy uses that then. If you're, if you're not working out of the renewal that is Christ, then you have a conviction of the way something should be or the way something should not be and somebody else breaks your conviction and then you have a right to be angry at them, Right? Wrong. Why do you submit to rules like that? We should not. Rather, you say, okay, I now realize because my conviction makes me angry at my friend, my brother in Christ, whatever, which is a sin against God, that my conviction itself must be inherently flawed if that's what it leads me to. It doesn't matter how good it sounds to you. It doesn't matter if it's perfectly reasonable. If somebody sold you on the idea ten times over, if you read the Bible from beginning to end and became convicted about something, if your conviction leads you to sin, then it is not of God. And that's how false religion works. That's why we have religions over the world that have millions of people in them because they, they have children and their children are very passionate about and they teach their children wrong ways and so on. And then the religion continues to grow. And the same reason why, this is the same reason why Christianity in certain parts of the world has died off substantially because they bought into a Christian model of Christianity which says you admit, you believe, and then you develop convictions. And if you do that, you're saved and it's going to be great and you'll walk away from your sin and everything will be fine. And... But that isn't what Scripture says. You legitimately, absolutely can do nothing on this earth to save your soul. Nothing. Your works are as filthy rags. That's what Scripture says. So going to church in a better looking dress or going to church giving more money or, or serving more hours a week, none of that is actually going to grow you spiritually. All of those things should grow out of the renewal that is in you, the flowing river of living water that God is pouring in and you should be like, man, if I don't go love on somebody, I'm going to get all sloppy up in here. I'm going to make a mess out of my life and myself if I, because this water is pouring up into me and driving me to go do something and instead of doing that something, I'm containing it. I'm making a mess of my life. 
And so then when that living water pours into you, you act it out and you let certain things go and you follow the path that Jesus is leading you down, which does not include certain things, and sin begins to fall away. Even things like outbursts of extreme emotion, people who have gotten angry over things or people who have been passionate over things or people who have gotten into bungee jumping or parachuting or whatever, they burn themselves on your mind doing the same thing. They become like a conviction. Now you need that. It's part of who you are. You need it. And so you're pursuing it. But Jesus Christ renews in the spiritual. And according to the scripture we just read, that renewal is ongoing. It's constantly flowing. Fill my cup. Let me just realize, I, I love Paul. That's PC3. Actually put that song out. I love that song. And I think it's a spiritual song and it's asking God to fill us up and it's the right thing to say. However, let me say this to you. If you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, God is always filling your cup. That's what the Word says. So if you're teetering on the edge about really whether to live for the Lord, teetering on the edge about whether to let this renewal, then that song is entreating God to do what God already wants to do, already said He'll do, and that's fine, that's good, we should worship God that way. I'm not saying anything negative about the song. But the reality is, if you're being renewed from the inside by God and filled up, you should be overflowing into doing all kinds of things that you never thought you would do. Because why? Because your human assessments, beliefs, and convictions are inherently flawed. So then you should say, well, I I don't do that. But here's the Holy Spirit. Here's God's Spirit leading me to do that. So I'm going to do that because that's what I'm supposed to do. That's that's who I am now. Mechanics fix cars. Christians follow Christ. That's what we do. It's who we are. And we set aside these things that our new self has nothing to do with. They were things from the flesh. But we don't do it because we're commanded to do it. The verse that people always quote about getting people to follow Jesus and following Jesus' commands and tell you, God said you have to do this, now you have to do it, is he who loves me follows my commands. Notice, it does not say, you must follow my commands to love me. He could have said that. Show me love by following my commands. He could have said that. What it actually says is that those who love me, in other words, you have a relationship with God and he's filling you up from the inside out, automatically, by their nature, who they are, they follow me They follow my commands. We've put the cart in front of the horse, trying to tell people what they should be doing. Most sermons, most verses that we read, they're talking about who we are in Christ. It's identity. It's what naturally flows out of you now that you're saved. If you're practicing great self-control to avoid doing certain things that you know are not right, that God would not want you to do, then you've missed the point. That's what I'm talking about. You're practicing great self-control, but you're not actually letting go of the thing that keeps cropping up. Talking with a person who is struggling with uh, cigarette addiction, and they're begging God to take it away and to do whatever. Um, Provide a great conviction to make them know for sure that they need to give it up. And I'm not going to say that that's a sin or there's anything wrong with that. But the truth is, if Jesus Christ is inside you saying, hey, that's not who you are now, then you have a certain question to ask yourself. And the question is not, how do I overcome this? Or what counseling do I get? Or what medications do I use? But you have to ask yourself a question about your identity in Christ. Since the days of the Garden of Eden, men have largely made their decisions in the physical realm. When I get out of bed in the morning, I don't wear the pants that have holes that will show my underwear. Those go in the garbage can. 
We make our decisions in the physical realm because we have to see, hear, feel, and that's how we make our decisions. Eve looked at the tree and saw that it was good for food, a delight to the eyes, and desirable to make one wise. So she took and ate it. When you become a follower of Christ, there's a change in you. The flow is reversed. The traffic flow on this chart is reversed. It is now governed by your renewed heart, which is alive and free and a residence of the living God. But when you start with an admission and it develops into a belief and a conviction, that looks spiritual. It looks like you're growing more as a Christian than anybody else. And so, your conviction gains traction. And you're like, I'm going to live this way. People like it when I live this way. I'm with my family and they, you know, they like me more this way and so on. But it won't get you to heaven because that ain't how it works. If your belief is that Jesus Christ was the Son of God and died on the cross for you, Open your heart to Him renewing you. Let Him be Lord and Savior of your life. Let Him direct you and guide you from now on. And He is not going to walk along with you smacking the back of your hand every time your flesh yearns for something. Rather, He's going to say, this is what your hand should be busy doing. This is how we live. There are so many illustrations of the flawed process of how this works. I read a story about a little girl, five years old. She says to her mommy, Mommy, when I grow up, I want to be a nurse. And her mommy's thinking, you know, very progressively. And she says, oh, honey, you know, why limit yourself to being a nurse? When you grow up, you can be anything you want. You know, you can be a doctor. Why be a nurse when you can be a doctor? So, or you could be president of the United States. You can be anything you want. And she says, mommy, I can be anything I want. And, he, and her mommy says, yes, you can be anything you want. And she says, okay, good. I'm going to be a horse. What are we doing? We've forgotten that no one less than the God of the universe is tending the affairs of your heart if you're saved. Would you ever take the hand of the sinless man who died on the cross and put his hand to immorality or idolatry or adultery, fornication? Would you ever use the sinless hand with the scars and the spikes still in it to work your phone to pull up a picture of a naked woman or to type a nasty social media text with the F word in it? Would you ever use Jesus' hand to do that? Your life is hidden in Christ with God. There's nothing less than what we're doing. And I'm not asking you to develop a conviction or to follow a rule. I'm not asking you to believe that certain things are wrong that you do. I'm not even asking you for that. God is not asking for that. Rather, the Holy Spirit inside you is trying to shape you into the person that you now are. Stop picking up the pieces of the old dead you and trying to make them better. Rather, ask yourself, who am I now? And in the case of the illustration of smoking, for example, does the, new, does the current you smoke? Does Jesus you smoke? Would you ever take the hand of Jesus with the nail scar still in his hand and reach out and take a cigarette and have him put it to your mouth? Would you ever do that? Well, if you would never do that, then you know that the new you doesn't do that. But if you'd say, well, you know, he doesn't care. And I'm not, and I'm not preaching against smoking. You have to decide. If you say, well, if Jesus was alive today, he'd probably smoke himself. If that's what you believe, then... You deal with it with God, not my part. I'm not going to tell you not to do it. 
But what I will tell you is that the Holy Spirit flowing up inside you is leading you to a set of behaviors, a personality construction that is different from who you were before you got saved. We ask questions like this. We say, what should I do? Wrong! Stop saying, what should I do? Stop thinking, what should I do next? And I'm really hurting the business management side of me right now because my great success in management is I keep a list of three things that I should do next in my head. And I do that one, and then I do that one, and then I do that one, and then I go back to the list of 50 or 60 waiting, and I pick three more. But we should stop saying, what should I do? That's what Paul was talking about. That's false promotions. It's making us look like we're more like Jesus when in reality, apparently, we're not. We should stop reading Scripture as rules. That's the difference between the microscopic and the myopic. In the microscopic, you can look at something under very close detail and you figure out what it is. You go, oh, that's awesome. I can see the cells down there. And if you take a leaf off the tree, you can do that. But while you're looking in the microscope and looking at the cells inside that leaf, you'll miss the great big tree that's in the yard. And that's what we're doing when we say, to the Bible says, well, I've I got to stop lying. Oh my God, I really got to stop lying. I, I'm, I'm really developing a conviction about that. I'm really going to have to stop. You're cutting short the fact that Jesus Christ does not lie and it is nothing short of Him that lives in you. So let Him be in charge. And be busy doing the things that you're supposed to be doing and there won't be any room for it. Feeling restrained. I can't do what I really want to do. I'm lusting after that boy or that girl or that media or that, that job. I want to spend my money just any old way. I want to feel like I'm alive. I want to go do something crazy. I want to change my life. Oh, but I can't because God won't let me. That's wrong. God lives in you so that you can have a life more abundantly. Whatever it is that you're desiring that's not of Him, you don't want it anyway. You only think you want it because you've accepted it, you've admitted it, you even believed it. Instead, here's how the process actually works. Ask the question, who am I? Not what should I do, but who am I? Do I see me in Jesus, doing this thing that I'm thinking about doing. Who am I? Or who is he? Take my illustration and use it if you want. Would Jesus, with his hand, do for you what you are about to do? And if he would not, then you shouldn't either. But don't ask yourself what you should do and what you shouldn't do, but ask yourself, who is he? And then, what is he doing in me? What is God doing? As I go through this difficult time, because listen, ain't none of us ever wants to go to the stake, be crucified, take a bullet in the head, run out into crossing traffic to save a small child, be crushed by a passing semi. Nobody wants to do any of that. The truth is, God could take you right there to that moment, and you might have to do it. Not because it's you. Not because it's what Dan would want, or what Ron would want, or what RJ would want. Not, not because of what Karina would want. And the truth is, if you do any of those things, we will mourn your loss. Not as those who have no hope, but we will mourn your loss. But you just might have to do it because it is not you, it is Jesus in you. And Jesus did it. He died on the cross. What is Jesus doing in you? Valuing your relationship with Jesus is more important than anything else. 
when we start thinking Jesus is more important than anything else, the words that he has given us is more important, will we begin to read our Bibles? Because then we can stop saying you should read your Bible. Because the truth is, if you're not reading your Bible ever, you don't believe Jesus is more important than anything else. That's just the bottom line. You say whatever you want. One of the greatest quotes from our church history is when somebody said, if God ain't in it, I don't want nothing to do with it. If you believe if God ain't in it, you don't want nothing to do with it, you don't have time to block out in your schedule to take out the things of God and to put in something else. Because if God ain't in it, then the God that's in you isn't in it. Which means if you're in it, then he isn't in you. Look at the mathematics. If you go to hell, you were never saved. Because Jesus ain't going to hell. If Jesus is in you, he ain't going to hell. And you aren't either. And you're going to be able to live free and powerful and change the world around you. If Jesus in you is in you, you're not going to miss the fact that God sent his son to die on the cross. And when he takes a snippet of your life, he won't find you wasting it on some pastime that does not include God. He'll find you making sure that everything you do every day is about Him. Not because that's a command or a conviction, but because He's the one living in you. And if He's living in you by your admission only part of the time and the rest of the time you're in charge, then you're not saved. That's the way it works. Because when we get saved, we get the circumcision of the heart. You get the circumcision of the heart, you get the flow of the living water. You get the flow of the living water, you're renewed from inside. And now all of your decisions start on the bottom of the chart. And you really only have to go as far as convictions, by the way. You don't have to go to beliefs and admissions. You really only have to go to, this is who Jesus is. This is what Jesus is doing in me. This is what I'm trying to do with Jesus, what what he wants me to do. That's it. That's all you have to do. And then you just do that. And if it costs you your life, it costs you your life. If it costs you your money, it costs you your money. It costs you your blood, it costs you your blood. It costs you your friends, it costs you your friends. No one, lest he should hate his father and mother, can come and follow after me. Now, I understand hate is a strong word. It didn't literally mean you should hate anyway. God is love. You shouldn't hurt hate at all. But what he was saying is, Jesus first. And if you go back now, you could make a theology that would take every single verse of this Bible and line up with the fact. We say, Jesus wants to have a personal relationship with us. That's a weak saying compared to what he actually wants to do. He wants to take up residence in you and guide you to be alive. Renewed. That's what I want. I'm tired of a Christianity that says, well, you've got to admit it's true, believe it's true, be convicted, and do better. I don't even believe that anymore. I believe you've got to let Jesus Christ take the helm of your life. He's going to live in you, and you're going to do what He would want to do in any given circumstance with what gifts He's given you, abilities given you, the mind He has. All of this is taking place basically in your brain until Jesus is in your heart. And you can shut your brain down so many times. Just a week ago, there was something I was going to do. And for an hour, I debated with myself whether or not I should do it. For an hour, I felt like something was restraining me. I shouldn't do it. I shouldn't do it. I shouldn't do it. Finally, I said to God, God, what what should I do here? 
And God said, just do it. And whatever happens, happens. Who cares? <laughs> Why are you beating yourself up? So I did it. And it worked out fine. For an hour. I'm just a human being. You're a human being. Jesus is willing to live in human beings. Won't you let him? Won't you live that way? Put that stuff aside, not because it's a command you're told not to do, but because it's just not who you are anymore. Let me pray with you and we'll be through. Father in heaven, I'm reminded of the scripture in the Old Testament where some of the Jewish sons went to a town they wanted to unite and they wanted to have brides from the Israelites and they told them they had to be circumcised. And so all the men in the town snipped their foreskins and they were all down in bed for a few days and then the Israelite sons were able to go in and kill them all while they were weak. And they used that circumcision as a weapon and then they were severely treated because of it. They were not blessed. They were pretty much cast out from amongst your favorite people. And the truth is, Lord, I want people to be honest. I want people to be kind. I want people to love one another. I want people to be giving. I want people to be serving. And I want all those things for myself and I want them for everybody around me and all the young people and people I've known for a long time and people I don't even know yet. I'm learning through this scripture that there's absolutely no way to make that happen. It's in your hands. And for people who have been given the ministry of reconciliation, for a people who can aim the living water at the hearts of other people, who can tell the truth, and those who are called will accept the truth, not admit it, or even believe it, but open themselves up to you. They will receive you. They're given a heart of flesh where their heart of stone once was. And then begin to let go of the things that their dead flesh used to do and live the vibrant, powerful, amazing, incredible, wonderful, and sometimes sucky, suffering, terrible, tribulation things that it is to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. May we know your voice and follow you as good sheep to the good shepherd. And we turn back the divisive. We turn back every enemy who would come against your church. And stand holy and powerful and yes, loving and kind, compassionate, serving and giving and all those things that we so desperately want to be want others to be to us and for us we can be those things not because we're trained to because we think it's the best way to go but because you're living water your redemption your, your ongoing renewal is present in us Father help us there's somebody in this room who didn't come in here today knowing that they were living for Jesus, didn't come in here today knowing that they were saved. And as we sing this song, who surrender themselves totally to you, doesn't matter what anybody else thinks or even what they thought before they came in, but they now know that they're not saved, that they've not been reborn, they've not experienced the beginning of that renewal. And Lord, help them to respond to your invitation and make it so. 
we're here today and we've, we've been living by laws and decrees and rules rather than by that outflowing living water in us. And we've been trying to piece together parts of dead, fallen existence rather than living an abundant life. And Lord, correct us now. Set us free again today. Set even this aside. The circumcision of our heart be complete. Our loyalty to you be complete. Our lives be hidden with you, in you with God. And then together let us, you and me, and you and each person in this room who's willing, live the remainder of our days being the kind of people that people are when they have you in them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Guys, the praise team come forth this time. We're going to sing a closing hymn. This is your opportunity to make a decision. If, if something has touched your heart or you do need to make a public pronouncement of some kind, please do so during this message or during this song. Um, get my attention, whatever. And if you... Um, if you're accepting Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior in earnest for the first time, then you come and let us know that so we know what your decision is. And if there's anything else on your heart, you need to be baptized or you need to join the church or you need to serve in some capacity and you've been holding yourself back, then you come and let us know that as well. Okay. So we'll ask you, if you're comfortable and able to do so, to sing as we sing this song. Stand with us. And the words are coming.